and welcome to episode 98 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Zachary Myers, Nida Ghani, Fenor, Sydney Bedford, Kim Becker, Karen Powell, Ryan Challen, Fernanda Luna, Annie Cooper, Sinye Shearbeck, Panny Magossi, Patricia Fisher, Vix Collins, Mandalay Wolfschlager, Holly Shoemaker, Catherine Perkins, Kelly Osborne, Fallen Takax, Emily, Debbie Sharp, Jocelyn Callis, Martina McShane, Paisley Noir, Deborah Earnshaw, Perry, Megan McCann. Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate you every single day. We sure do. Our film review this week. Our film review is The Lighthouse. The Lighthouse was released in 2019. It has 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb and 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? I'd love one. Two lighthouse keepers try to maintain their sanity while living on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. What were your thoughts on this film? There were bits of it I liked. There were bits of it that made me laugh. And then there were bits of it where I just thought, what the hell is going on? I liked the way that it was... I know I always say this stuff, but it's true. I liked the way it was shot in what I guess is 8mm maybe, or like not wide frame basically in black and white I liked the dynamics between the characters the way that changed when they were sober between they were drunk I thought that was good I liked the fact that it looked at madness at the the sort of madness that would happen from being in this situation and portrayed that in a way that just made you feel mad there were bits about it that I didn't like and it did come across very pretentious but I didn't hate it so I've been telling people that this was based on Ilan Moore. It's really not. It's based on a real story of two men in a lighthouse and one of them passed away and the other man was stuck on the lighthouse with this body and just went mad. And when oh, wow. and when he was picked up, he was had just lost his mind completely, which is incredibly sad. Like, mm. yeah, awful. Massively. But I cannot express how much I fucking hated <laughs> this film. I I think this is my open house. I just hated it so much. I thought it was absolute pretentious nonsense. I, ju- I just can't with it. I, right, I will. Good things about it. It was very beautiful. Absolutely. Visually to look at, it was striking. I thought Robert Pattinson and William, is it William or Willem? Well, well just either. William Defoe were outstanding. There is one scene in it where William Defoe curses Robert Pattinson's character like he does like this weird old sea curse. yeah he does yeah apparently that it was shot in one take and William Defoe didn't blink for two minutes wow that is impressive <laughs> so I read loads about this film afterwards because I hated it so much I was trying to find <laughs> redeeming factors I just found it to be so pretentious I don't need to see Robert Pattinson repeatedly masturbating over a tiny wooden mermaid I'm sorry I don't need to see it and I don't need I don't need regular references to sperm. And I get that it's a it's a story about two frail men on a rock on their own and their descent into madness. But I just, there were elements of it that just turned my stomach and I'm not okay after seeing it. I think it'd be really unfair for me to sit here and 
not call it out for being pretentious because I did the same thing about Midsummer, and this is a next level pretentiousness. However, to compare it to Open House is a massive injustice <laughs> because they, you've got, actually got two people that are acting their socks off and doing a really good job at acting. I'll give you that. There it's is a, a terrible, story to it's, it. It's a terrible comparison. I'll give you that. <laughs> it's just in terms of your hatred, I guess, yeah? Yeah, in terms of hatred, not in terms of actual cinematography, acting ability or plotline, even though the plotline of Lighthouse was insane because you were following their descent into madness. Yeah, and it was it was a question of is Willem Dafoe's character gaslighting the other character or not? Or is he just making it up? It makes you feel like you're going insane with it, which I valued. Maybe it was too complex for my tiny brain. There were cool bits of it, like the whole don't ever kill a seabird because they hold the souls of dead sailors. Yeah. Like that's, that is a real like maritime legend. So like that kind of thing is kind of cool. And I do understand that a lot of it was like rooted in mythology and I, I do get that, but it did, it very much felt to me like the, the directors were like patting themselves on the back about how in, how incredibly clever they are. And it frustrated me the whole way through. See, now I've got a theory about this film because I have to give you credit. You actually paid attention all the way through. I did with a very confused <laughs> look on my face. But you, but you still paid attention. It is... ranged between confused and thoroughly disgusted yep. because of the sheer amount of various bodily fluids that were present in this film. I am going to make a suggestion that's going to make me sound incredibly snobbish. But I'm going to say if you saw that on a stage in a theatre, you saw those acting performances... With that storyline and that characterization, you wouldn't have had the same opinion. I thought about this when I was watching it because it is a, a film that's built for stage. It's a dialogue that's built for stage. And I read some critics saying that it very it was very reminiscent of Samuel Beckett, which actually, when you listen to the dialogue, it is. And I probably would come away from a stage production going, my God, <laughs> that changed my world. But I didn't enjoy the film. I, th- I thought it was too mad. There's a bit, there's a scene in it where I just really didn't understand. It's like a, a frozen scene with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. And then it, it turns out that particular scene is like, or that image is based on this like maritime painting. And I was like, but there was no, I just, I can't, I just can't. Wet, I think, it, I do think it was the masturbating over the mermaid where it lost me. Yeah. And it was super pretentious. Like, don't get me wrong, but the, I like, there was the sort of, arty side of me liked the pretentiousness of it I liked the way it was framed I thought it was shot beautifully there was so much about this film that I liked but it was super pretentious I will give you that so what would you give it out of five I'm gonna give it a three I, I can't give it any any less because it is I, I think for for a piece of art it's good I, I don't necessarily think it's got mass wide ranging appeal but personally I didn't mind it I'm a bit torn about what to give this film because I, I don't think it's fair to be like it's a zero because I don't I genuinely don't think that's fair I also, like I said, really appreciated the performances of Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Like I, I, they were outstanding, and it was very visually appealing to look at and very cleverly shot. So, despite the fact that I would never watch it again, and it made my blood boil and my stomach turn simultaneously, I am going to give it a two. Okay, I'm because proud of you. you know what, I appreciate it for what it is, but I still fucking hate it. And I never want to see it again. Fair enough. Which brings us to our story this week. It can only be Tales from the Sea. Actually, it isn't <laughs> Tales from the Sea. It's it's nothing of the sort, which would have been some sort of 
wonderful link there <laughs> if I had researched some maritime tales, but I haven't. So, in all of our research, there's something very powerful about witnesses who have a position of power in society, whether that's like, you know, a judge witnessed a ghost. A doctor witnessing a medical miracle. Yeah, Yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And we often talk about the testimony of police officers when they witness the paranormal and other first responders. And I found a book on Amazon called Credible Witness by a man called Andy Gilbert. And it's all paranormal police stories. So I've taken, uh, I think it's four stories from this book He's got them all separated into like stories from police on foot patrol, stories from police in cars, stories from uh, police when they've responded to a case. So it's really it's really well thought out. There are volumes of stories in this like you. It's absolutely worth a read. And I believe that when this was first published, I mean, I don't know about now when it was first published, the proceeds um, any money that Andy Gilbert made, he was donating it to charity. So I think it was just a bit of a passion project for him. So I have taken some police first response stories. Are you ready? No, because this... uh... Story number one comes from a police officer who was on foot patrol. What I'm about to tell you took place when I was a probationary constable posted to Walsall Police Station in the early 1980s. Walsall is a large town with a market area in the centre. It's famous for its saddle making and leather industry. I had just returned from two weeks of leave and would be starting a set of seven nights, with the first one being on a Monday night. I was posted to foot patrol in the town centre and although not as warm as Majorca from where I just returned... It was still a pleasant summer's night. It was usually quiet at the start of the week, and it got busier as the weekend approached. On this particular night, once the pubs had closed, it was a fairly routine patrol, checking the security of the shops and stopping to speak to anyone who happened to be walking about in the early hours. A short time after midnight, I was walking along George Street when I suddenly saw a boy aged about 13 wearing a school uniform just a few yards ahead of me. My initial thought was, what the fuck is he doing out here at this time of night? Before I could think of anything else, he ran straight towards me, so my intention was to grab hold of him and speak to him. The boy was running at quite a pace, so I put my arms out to grab him by the shoulders as he was coming straight at me. I braced myself for the impact, but felt nothing. The boy ran straight through me, not around me or to the side of me, but straight through my body. I stood in shock, unable to move, staring at my boots where the boy should have been standing firmly in my grasp. By the time I turned around to look behind me, he had disappeared. I recognised the school uniform, as being from one of the local schools in Walsall. I was absolutely stunned and walked around for a while trying to understand what had just happened. Later, I met up with another probationer who was also on foot patrol in the town centre. I told him what had happened 
and whether he believed me or not, I don't know, but I was just relieved to tell somebody. We both thought that it was best not to mention it due to the culture in the police at the time. If I had told my supervisors, they would think that I was mad. I finished my shift and went home, still thinking about what had happened and unable to make any real sense of it. The following night on parade, the shift inspector announced that he wanted to speak to me in his office. If you're asked to speak to the inspector, it usually means that you're in some sort of trouble. I felt very uneasy because this particular inspector had a fearsome reputation. I walked into the office, anticipating the worst, and the inspector opened the pleasantries with a brusque, Why didn't you find him? Find who, sir? I responded. The inspector then angrily informed me that earlier in the afternoon the body of a schoolboy had been found on some wasteland near the town centre and for obvious reasons I won't go into specific details, but sadly it looked like he had taken his own life. The deceased lad had attended the same school as the boy who ran straight through me. It looked like his body had been at the location where it was found for a few days. The inspector quizzed me further. He wanted to know if I'd been on the wasteland that night, which I hadn't. The inspector seemed very critical about not finding the body, but it was just wasteland, and not the kind of area that would warrant any attention, not when you have a large town centre to look after. I obviously didn't mention what happened to me. I left the office lost for words. The incident is as clear in my mind today as the same night that it happened. And even today... I often think about that unfortunate boy. That's a little bit creepy. Because I'd imagine if you were out on the beat, you'd see someone in the street, you expect them to be real. They come running at you, probably expect them to be able to catch them. And then they just go through you. And then, yeah, that's that's creepy. Whether or not it's got anything to do with the body on the wasteland or not, even though it sounds like it does, still really creepy. Yeah, the two, it's very, like the two things are very coincidental. I wondered after reading it whether... There was an element of guilt to it, like he felt like he should have found the body and needed some sort of, like, story in his mind to relieve himself of any guilt of not finding the body. I don't really know. That might be the case. But I also feel like you're trained in those situations, like any kind of surveillance situation, so not just policemen, but also, you know, security guards at stores or anybody that watches CCTV. You're trained to look for things that don't fit in and a kid in a school uniform wouldn't fit in. Yeah, at four o'clock in the morning yeah. or whatever time he said it was, yeah. So it would be something that you'd be alerted to. So I've got, I feel like he's probably telling the truth, but might just be making a link that wasn't there. And I guess because that situation is so bizarre, even though the link is horrific, yeah, and it's obviously impacted him massively, it's still a link that makes you go, okay, that makes it a little bit more explainable, which yeah, probably does. makes it a bit more comforting for him. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's In true. some sort of way. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I found another story that was weirdly similar. Oh, really? But from a completely different police officer. Okay. And was witnessed by other people. Ooh, okay. Are you ready? Oh, I was going to say, if you weren't going to tell us that story, that would be good. <laughs> yeah, imagine. And uh, we'll move on. <laughs> I started out my service working at police stations a few miles outside of Birmingham. After two years of either being on foot patrol or a passenger in police vehicles, 
I passed my driving course and was allowed to drive a police car. This incident happened soon after I'd qualified as a police driver. I have deliberately omitted some of the details out of courtesy for other people who were involved in the incident or who may have been affected by the events that I'm about to describe. It was at a time when cars were frequently being stolen, mainly for joyriding, but to such an extent that it had become a serious problem for the police. Many of the people who stole cars seemingly enjoyed being chased by the police and had little regard for their own safety or for the safety of anyone else. There was an expectation that irrespective of your police driving experience, you would try your best to follow stolen cars and try and catch offenders. It was often cat and mouse stuff, and on nights when the streets were relatively empty, pursuits with stolen cars took place all of the time. On this particular occasion, my partner and I were on mobile patrol in the north of Birmingham, when a call came over the radio stating that a stolen car was being pursued about five miles away from our location. Naturally, I began to head towards the area where the pursuit was taking place. I was only a basic driver, in an Austin Maestro Panda car. There were two Austin Rover Montego cars behind the stolen car that were being driven by advanced drivers. In all honesty, I did not really expect to get near the real action. But as we were travelling south, I saw the stolen car coming towards me, pursued by the two area cars, lights flashing, sirens sounding. I managed to get behind the other two police vehicles, trying to keep up but occasionally falling behind a little. Through the twists and turns of the streets, I caught sight of the stolen car in front of me, racing at speed in a desperate attempt to get away. The high-speed convoy arrived on a notorious road for accidents, due to its snake-like bends and corners. As the stolen car raced towards a junction, I saw the rear wheels leave the road surface, causing the car to start to roll over. It seemed to be in slow motion, as it flipped over and would have continued rolling, except that the roof smashed into a lamppost, stopping the car dead and flattening the roof. The lamppost, damaged by the force of the impact, fell over, landing directly on the car. The other police cars came to a stop just past the wreckage, ahead of me. Seconds after the roof of the car had struck the lamppost, I saw a person get out of the passenger side and run straight across the road in front of me, causing me to slam on my brakes as he was lit up by my headlights, and I just managed to avoid hitting him. I then saw the person run away over the road in front of me, and he disappeared into the darkness of a large, grassy recreation area. I immediately recognised the person as someone I had arrested recently, and I had a good view of him in my headlights. The police officer I was with saw the lad too, and knew him by name. I stopped the car and ran over to the crushed vehicle, as the priority was to see if anyone else was inside that needed our help. The roof was crushed flat, and it was impossible to see inside. I called up on the radio naming the person and informing the controller that the suspect had escaped across into the recreation area. There was then some confusion, as the officers who had been at the front of the pursuit came running over to me and said that no one had gotten out of the car, and neither could they have. 
I insisted that my partner and I had both seen someone get out of the car and I again named the person who I thought it was, but they did not seem to be very interested. This was obviously frustrating and at the same time really confusing. The fire brigade responded quickly to the incident and when they arrived they soon managed to cut the roof off of the vehicle. As they twisted and crushed and the metal was cut away, there was only one person inside who had tragically lost their life. Because of the extent of his injuries, it was difficult at first to recognise the person, but a few moments later, his identity was confirmed, and when I heard the news, I started to physically shake. The deceased person inside the car was the same person that I had seen run from the car in front of my panda, causing me to break. I spent a long time after that night questioning what I had seen, but I was not alone. My partner saw it too, although he started to doubt himself after a while. Nothing has changed in my mind. This happened over 25 years ago and I am still convinced that I saw that person get out of the stolen car and the person I saw get out of the car was the deceased driver. I mean, how could you deal with that? It's almost as if like that would have been the next step had he not died. That would have been the next step that he would have done. It's that flight response. And it's like his soul almost did what he's, his body would have done had he stayed alive. Or even that his brain was already planning yeah. out to do. Yeah. Where he was like, okay, if this car stops for any reason, I'm going to have to run yeah. and hide. We've talked about that before, I think, yeah. in, in near-death experiences maybe, where... Indies. Yeah, where people like... Conti- the yeah. action continues even I, it's just that's a very bizarre story I was also a little bit sideswiped by them referring to their car as a panda because now I've got a vision of them in, in like a golden compass style two policemen riding on the back of a panda in a car chase maybe they were I mean that would be sensational maybe 1980s Birmingham was a very different place <laughs> yeah uh, Walsall and Birmingham are very close to each other I wonder if the author is located in that region oh I don't know because that would make sense why he's got there are stories from everywhere. Oh, okay. Yeah, there were stories from Australia and various other places that I can't be bothered listing. And in that particular section of the book where they talk about things that they saw in patrol cars, there was a great story, but I didn't include it, about a two police officers who were driving on the road and they saw five or six nuns walking on the road. And obviously nope. they, they did the same thing as the face that you just made, <laughs> where they were like, what the fuck? <laughs> So they pulled over in front of them to be like, are you okay? Where do you need to go? Like, what What the hell? And the nuns were gone. No, no, But no, those no. little stories are great, yeah, right? Yeah, don't like them. No, no, no haunted nuns, please. Particularly if they're holding a painting over their faces. <laughs> What's her name in the in the film? Valak or... Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. If you were in this situation, this had happened to you, would you tell anybody? I think for the first story... In Walsall, I would have reported that I'd seen a boy in school uniform on the street. Do you, would you, even if you, even if you'd had the experience where he had run through you? Yep, they can't disprove it, can they? Fair. It's in the time where there wasn't CCTV everywhere, so they couldn't just call up a camera and have a look and see if there was actually a boy on the street. They would have had to take your word for it, and then it might have actually led to the body being found quicker. Maybe I don't know. Or but- potentially. I think I probably would have reported that one. I don't know. I think you just, if you, I think the other, in the other story, the two are just so convinced that what they've seen has actually just happened. They call it in, don't they? Yeah. And I think if you were in that situation, you would call it in yourself because you, there's no reason to think it was a ghost. 
But even but even afterwards, I mean, would you tell people afterwards? Yes, he's called it in because they obviously believe that this is a real. <laughs> Having had a father that was in the police force in the eighties and knowing what the uh, atmosphere was like, I don't think you'd have much chance of keeping that a secret if you'd called in and it wasn't real. Oh, really? Would um... everyone take the piss out of you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So among the stories in this book were also stories of haunted police stations. Oh, really? Yes. Like all those fire stations we had on the 30 Days of Terror? Yes. Okay. And a lot of police stations in the UK and indeed in Ireland have been, are old buildings that have obviously been refashioned into police stations. So they're not necessarily... really old buildings anyway. They're not necessarily purpose-built police stations. So our third story is about one of those stations. Hmm. When I was a young probationary constable back in the late 1980s, I was stationed at the old Bilston police station situated on Mount Pleasant. Built around 1840, this building was constructed for the purpose of housing prisoners and included a dry moat running around the outside, which was used as the prisoner's exercise yard. It is believed to be the only moated police station in the country. In 1919, the station was the scene of a siege after an argument broke out in the town between two police officers and a group of drunken men. As the officers retreated back to the station, the crowd grew in size and more trouble took place outside of the town hall. The officers had to barricade themselves inside the police station as outside the angry mob smashed every single window and the front door was doused in petrol. The riot lasted until late into the night, but the rioters could not reach the officers inside. As part of a probationary constable's role at the time, we had to perform front office duties on night shifts. It was common banter amongst everyone who worked there that the old cells at Bilston were haunted. As a young copper, who was only 19 at the time, I was full of confidence and looking forward to my whole career ahead of me. I thought the talk of ghosts was just a joke, but how wrong I turned out to be. On one night duty, it must have been about 4am, I was alone in the nick. There was definitely no one else in the building, as it was so small that you could always hear people coming and going. You could also hear when any cars were parked up outside, so I knew that there was no doubt that I was alone. Without any warning, I heard the sound of banging in the old cells. The cells are right at the bottom of the building, situated on the same level as the bottom of the moat. There was then an increase in the level of noise and a change in the sounds, as I began to hear the sounds of chains rattling and distant, painful screaming coming up from the old cell block. To gain access to the cell area, you have to go down a small, confined stairwell. This is the only way in and out. As I considered myself to be fearless in those days, I went down the stairs to the cells. The lights did not work in the cell area, so I had to use my torch to look around. I must admit my heart was pounding. I checked all the rooms and found them to be empty. There was no furniture or anything else present that could have made the metal rattling sound of the chains. It did, however, feel very chilly, with a bitter feeling in the air. 
I very quickly made my way back up the stairs, making sure that I closed the door at the top and I returned to the front office. A few minutes later I heard another large bang come from the cells and it made me jump out of my chair. I was no longer feeling quite so brave at this point and I was seriously considering radioing the control room. Shortly afterwards two officers came through the front door of the police station. It was unusual for other officers to call in throughout the night. I told them what I had heard and although they initially gave me some ribbing I think they could see that I was genuinely concerned. The two officers managed to put my mind at ease and they went down to check the cells while I stood at the top of the stairwell. They checked every cell and room and confirmed that there was no one down there. I did several more night duties in the front office at Bilston and on at least two further occasions I heard the loud bangs and the horrible sound of screaming. I also heard the distinctive sound of metal chain noises coming from the cells. When these incidents occurred again, however, I did not venture back down there. I am happy to admit that I never actually went down into the cells again, and I always made sure that the top door was securely locked at the start of my duty. A few months after the last incident, I was moved to Wensfield Police Station, I had thought about the incidents a lot and told myself that I never wanted to work in Bilston front office ever again, and fortunately for me as a result of the move I never did. I remain convinced that someone or something was in the cells, the spirit of someone who had been mistreated in the past and was making a determined effort to make themselves heard. I really want to go and see this police station with a moat around it. Doesn't it sound incredible? Yeah, I don't even know where Bilston is. I have to look it up. I hate the thought of being in an old building on my own, particularly one that's a working building. I think it's different if it's a house. If it's somewhere where someone lives, there's a different energy to the building, but a work building, we've spoken about this so many times before where it's so busy in the day and then it goes really quiet at night. I don't like that. And then to be somewhere with the energy that a police station would have, which would just be all kinds of weirdness, I'd imagine, particularly with that siege story as well. It just adds to it. I don't like it. But what I do like about this guy is that he is clever because he's freaked out and the next time he hears it he doesn't investigate he just builds it into part of his routine that he makes sure that top door is locked so he has that safety that he knows that nobody can get in and out and then he just goes about his business that is a very rational way to react to this he deserves a round of applause (laughs) (laughs) and now he's gotten a round of applause if you're listening well done we salute you i think it's sensible like it just makes sense doesn't it if it's something you don't like or you're a bit scared of it's a good way of compartmentalizing it i wish that there was a way I could lock all the dolls up in the world. And then I know... So that every day you right. start your day by just locking that door. <laughs> door yeah, making sure it's locked. Then no dolls will come into my life. It's a good story, isn't it? I, I agree, I do want to see that police station because it just sounds incredible having a moat, a dry moat around it as an exercise yard. Yeah, I just want to see it from the outside. I don't want to go into the cells in the basement or anything like that. I'm happy with that. There was a time many moons ago when I worked in... I'm pretty sure I've told this, told this story before, but when I worked in the asylum and the fire alarm went off and the fire alarm had been triggered in a basement that wasn't used. Uh. And when the fire alarm went off, you would check a panel on the wall. It would tell you where the alarm had been triggered and you had to uh, go there, you know, to try to see if something was on fire or if patients were in danger or whatever. 
And it was in this basement that wasn't used. I didn't even know how to find the basement. That's how unused it was. Did you have to use like a, a map on a piece of parchment to work out where it was? Yes, I did. Oh, wow. Almost like the Marauder's map. <laughs> Amazing. And then the, the security, like we, we didn't even have a key to it. it the, the room was so unused or the basement was so unused that my master key didn't even open it. Wow. So we had to find one of the maintenance guys who was like, shit, I probably have a key for this somewhere. And we went down into this basement that was all like old stone walls and there were metal rings at various points in the walls and i was like oh shit i wonder what those are for and there was that moment of horrible realization where i thought oh god i know what those are for (laughs) because there were also fireplaces in the basement which would imply that they were used for people at various Mm. points which is absolutely petrifying I mean, I know logically that actually it's quite easy to set off a fire alarm in a locked door because it just takes a bit of dust or something like that sometimes with some of these systems just to trigger it. It used to happen all the time in one of the places that I worked at in the past where there would be no logical reason for that fire alarm to be going off and it would just turn out to be, oh, a bit of dust got into the receptor, which is not the right word for it, but I know what I'm talking about. However, still really creepy, particularly when it's that level of locked. And the fact that he said there was no furniture or anything down there that could be making the noise. Like this mm. wasn't a fire alarm. This was the sound of metal and banging from that basement. Oh, you cheat yourself. And then yep. screaming. Yeah. No way. You'd, I would do the same as him, I think. I'd go down once and be yep. like, okay, nobody's here. And we're never going there again. Yep. And lo and behold to him, he actually locked one of the day shift down there without realising. And then just ignored him because he thought, right, now I know there's nobody in there because I've locked the door. And the person is like, you have to let me out, James. And he's like, no, no, I know you're a ghost. You can't fool me. So I've got one more story for you. Okay. And this story is about a strange location. On Halloween night in 1986, I was a young constable posted to plainclothes duty with another police officer. We were tasked with the job of paying close attention to St. Mary's and St. Margaret's Church in Castle Bromwich, which is about five miles from Birmingham city centre. The current church was rebuilt around 1726. Unusually, the old church was not demolished and the current church had been built around the old timber framed building, creating a church within a church almost. There had been some information passed to the police that someone was going to break into the church and sacrifice an animal on the altar on Halloween night. During the previous night, the church had been broken into, although nothing else had been stolen. In view of this, the intelligence was being taken very seriously. There was nothing subtle about the job that we had been told to do. We were just dropped off and expected to tuck ourselves away in the vicinity of the church. We were both young in service and just had to get on with it. The church is situated in a dead end and has a small graveyard alongside it, separated by a narrow road, and there is only one way in and out. At that time it was popular with courting couples, and we had to move a few on while we were there. We did not want to be spoiled sports, but if there was going to be a satanic ritual taking place, we wanted to catch the offenders, and cars parked up in the vicinity might put them off. We waited around in the cold and the damp, when not long after midnight, we saw two dark figures in the graveyard. I could not make out whether they were male or female, but one of them was discernibly taller than the other. We watched them for a few moments, 
and waited to see if they would start making their way towards the church building. But they just disappeared. My colleague and I made our way over to the graveyard and in a few moments we established that there was nobody else in there. If you stand in the graveyard by the parapet wall, you can see the castle hill on the other side of the Chelmsley Wood Collector Road. It is known locally as Pimple Hill because of its small size. When the road network was developed, there was a lot of archaeological work on the site, and it is believed that in Norman times there was a square wooden watchtower, three stories high, on top of the steep hill. I looked over and saw what I'm convinced, due to the same height difference, the same two dark figures standing on the hill looking back at us. I could not make out their faces. There's a 30 foot drop at the back of the graveyard and they could not possibly have covered that distance and be on the other side of the dual carriageway in that very short space of time. The two figures just disappeared. We went back and checked the church building and it was all secure. I have no idea who or what those two figures were, but it remains the strangest event I have ever witnessed. Okay, first of all, have you ever been taken on a date to the graveyard? I'm trying to think, I'm desperately trying to think of a joke, but no, I haven't. Okay, because that seems like a really... Have you ever taken somebody on a date to a graveyard? I don't think I've ever taken anybody on a date. (laughs) Um, I think that's a really bizarre place to go on a rendezvous. I, I was going to call it a sexual rendezvous, but that changes the tone of it completely, doesn't it? But I guess if at the time, if you're a teenager and you're trying to have some privacy and this is a road where it's one way in, one way out, people oh, yeah, are yeah, unlikely true. to be going to the graveyard at night time unless they're a Satanist, at which point you're both kind of doing your own thing. Neither of you want to be interrupted. So you're probably just going to go, OK, let's ignore each other for now. So I kind of get it. And if you're quick enough, you don't, you're no longer a target for satanic ritual. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the other thing is if I was a officer uh, and my senior said to me right you need to um, stake out a graveyard on Halloween night I'd be like here's my notice (laughs) see you later absolutely no thank you (laughs) I'd want I would not be chasing any of those couples off because anything that might stop that ritual from happening is a good vibe good thing in my book so I'd be like putting little signs up saying welcome to lovers police everywhere (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> big spotlights on the church i also think it should be a law that every old church whenever they want to renovate they just need to build a new church around the outside of the old church so eventually we get this monolithic cathedral which has got like seven different layers like of churches. russian nesting <laughs> dolls it did make me wonder if we always hear about satanic rituals in like in in legend and local legend and the only kind of real story that we've done that has covered satanic ritual is the boy in the attic which was you know so it was like episode seven or something we did that in and it's the only tangible real satanic ritual that we had a hold of because there was like the satanic bible involved and he had an altar in in the attic and all that awful stuff that Annie obviously murdered a child the story where i think oh was this a genuine satanic ritual but the thing is i think even if you think of it so if you take the satanic aspect out of it i think the police are interested because actually it's the equivalent of really going into a church and spray painting or smashing windows isn't it it's a destruction of property really if you're going to yeah. slaughter a goat on an altar it's very disrespectful of what it is so i don't know whether it was i don't know whether they were tasked because it was necessarily a satanic ritual no, or no, because no, they I had don't evidence so that they knew that they were going to be breaking into the church again yeah 
I don't think at all that the police have like a satanic ritual wing where they're just waiting for satanic rituals to happen. Um, Although who they might. is Constantine in that case? Very true. There you go. See? Very true. I take it back. Clearly, <laughs> Constantine is the satanic ritual wing of the police. I know, I know you said there were stories from other parts of the world, but... That very was also Birmingham from Birmingham. Centers, yeah. I didn't um, I didn't think about that when I was picking the stories, you know. I didn't think about them on a map, so I apologize. I think there's a logical explanation for it though. It's I'd probably am- Birmingham based, yeah. Yeah, or that actually, you know, if you speak to one PC from that era, they're probably still in contact with other PCs and it's probably very easy to just get a batch of people to talk about their from one area than it is to go like, right, I want one from London, one from Manchester, one from Birmingham. One from Glasgow. I'd love to know how many police officers have had weird weird experiences that don't talk about it. I can imagine that there are many who have weird experiences. Like, I mean, paranormal, not just weird. As in yeah, I was going to say, all people. of my dad's my dad's weird experience stories involve a, a, a funny and weird and not paranormal. But yeah, but I mean, weird. like, I mean specifically paranormal. Yeah. I, like, it just, I'd love to know how many have these kind of experiences and just never talk about it and go... I'm going to pretend that never fucking happened. I wonder if it's easier to talk about it in the current environment than it would have been in the 80s, 70s and 80s, 60s, I don't 70s, know. 80s. I don't know. It's hard to know, isn't mm. it? It's interesting. It's very interesting. But yeah, I would not be being posted at a graveyard on a night shift in plain clothes on Halloween. Oh, you'd be fucking miserable though, wouldn't Ooh. you? Like, never mind the whole spooky aspect of it. You'd also be like... It is October. It's nearly November. It is cold and wet, and I'm stuck here all night waking, waiting for people in hoods to show up to slaughter a goat. This is not what I signed up for when I became a police officer. That's what I'd be thinking. And then you end up seeing some kind of druid apparitions. Apparitions. No, what's the word? Apparitions. <laughs> apparitions. <laughs> yeah, not nice. So, if you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find everything that you need to know about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can find the link to our email address where you can send your own spooky stories in. You can find the link to all of our social medias. You can also find the link to our Patreon where for $5 a month you get access to over 70 spooky episodes of Tiny Tales. And for $2 a month you get access to over 25 episodes of 50p Movie Club which is... A podcast I used to do with Will and I now do with Dave where I get a movie from the 50p section of CEX and we watch it and it's normally not very good and we talk about it. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye!